Hello, and welcome to The Turbulent World with James M. Dorsey. The 2022 Qatar World Cup has come and gone. Most fans will remember the exhilarating matches and the dramatic final. They will recall the emergence of Morocco as a tournament starling. For some, the politics will stick in their mind. Expressions of support for the Palestinians, struggles over support for LGBTQ rights, and the unprecedented, more than a decade-long campaign by human rights groups and trade unions to improve the working and living conditions of migrant workers. The tournament may be history, but the often fierce debate about Qatar is not. To be sure, the debate has moved on. It focuses on lessons learned from a country that, at least when it came to workers' rights, was willing to engage. Those lessons are particularly relevant, with countries like Saudi Arabia set to host a slew of tournaments over the next decade, and bidding for many more. The bids include an effort, together with Egypt and Greece, to win the hosting rights for the 2030 World Cup. Saudi Arabia and Egypt, two of the world's worst violators of human rights, are in contrast to Qatar unlikely to recognize their critics let alone engage with them. Gulf states' forays into sports are not limited to hosting. They involve the acquisition of high-profile clubs like Manchester City, Paris Saint-Germain, and Newcastle United, and now perhaps even Manchester United, as well as celebrity players like Neymar and Ronaldo. The forays also involve attempts to control whole sport disciplines, with Saudi Arabia's creation of an alternative golf tournament, an effort to set up the world's richest cricket competition, while Qatar has invested in the International Paddle Federation to create a new global tour. The Qatari world experience may well embolden the kingdom in maintaining a hard line. Criticism of Qatar was relentless in the 12-year walk-up to the 2022 World Cup. Yet the Gulf state emerged from the successful hosting of the tournament with its reputation enhanced rather than tarnished. Similarly, perceptions of the debate about Qatar that was as much about legitimate rights issues as it was skewed by prejudice, bias, sour grapes, and a Western-centric focus is likely to reinforce Saudi reluctance to engage. To discuss these matters, I am joined today by Karim Zidane, an acclaimed Egyptian-Canadian journalist, short story writer, and translator. Karim's coverage of sports and politics is published by major publications, such as the New York Times, The Guardian, and Foreign Policy. Karim also has his own column, Sports Politica, on Substack, which I wholeheartedly endorse. You can subscribe to Karim's column at karimzidan.substack.com. Karim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, James. It's uh, That was a really fantastic introduction and very kind of you to say, and someone who's been reading your work for years and years now. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to, to have you. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get straight forward. Before we get into the lessons learned, let's focus for a minute on why autocracies like Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt want to host mega sporting events. 
Critics, by and large, think it's about improving images, tarnished by the abuse of human and other rights. The critics seem to suggest that it's primarily about what they initially termed reputation laundry, and now called sports washing. It strikes me that the issue of reputation is about much more. It's about positioning on the international stage. It's an understanding that soft power matters, that diplomacy today is far broader than government-to-government contacts. It involves cultural and public diplomacy and people-to-people diplomacy. And it's about economics, attracting foreign investment and foreign talent. And of course, last but not least, domestic human development and social cohesion. You've given the issue of reputation a lot of thought. I'd love to hear your take. So I think, uh, James, when it comes to the, the, the term sports washing, I think it's a, a, a troubled term in many ways, simply because we've limited our understanding of sports washing to the concept of reputation laundering. And therefore, I find that the term is really limited and I try to use it as little as possible now. Because let's just take, you know, Saudi Arabia as an example here. Uh, for context. Saudi Arabia is not simply doing this as an attempt to reputation launder, though that might be one of the factors. It is also the most basic uh, and shallowest uh, analysis of what Saudi Arabia is doing. Because as you said, this really is a multi-pronged effort by uh, by the kingdom. There's elements of, uh, of soft power, there's elements of prestige, there's elements of diplomacy, there is enhancements of tourism and other economic uh, factors at play, uh, just general development and divestment from oil and its dependence on oil. All these are legitimate uh, uh, elements of this concept of sports washing on top of, you know, more issues with regards to tourism. Even even the simple concept of social improvement, such as uh, getting Saudi Arabians to actually get up and move, uh, be more concerned about their health. That, at the end of the day, is concern for the future of the country, which uh, benefits the economy of the country. Uh, so it's 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 a a perpetual cycle. It's ongoing when it comes to Saudi Arabia. It's not simply about just reputation laundering. At this point, I think they receive so much backlash that reputation laundering really isn't much of an element anymore. If anything, they I believe that they would brute force their way through sports anyway, whether it was a benefit or not to their reputation. I think elements such as, you know, the live golf uh, fiasco that's ongoing in the United States right now, where Saudi Arabia actually invested and created its own rival to the PGA golf tour. Well, that isn't simply Saudi Arabia now. Uh, hosting sports events, as as people think that this is all just about hosting sports events, but they actually see themselves as capable of challenging uh, a, a traditional and long-standing U.S. sports leagues. I mean, that's how confident they are in their abilities at this moment. So I'd say that uh, there's a lot of context required depending on the country that we're talking about. And for example, something like Saudi Arabia, we're seeing that this is a very complex, multi-pronged effort. Tourism, I think I can't think we can understate just how important the concept of tourism is to them. They are really trying to present themselves as a global hub, not just for sports, not just for entertainment, but for just general travel as well. Saudi Arabia, for those who really don't know or haven't, you know, haven't really followed the country before uh, it really came to the forefront under Hamad bin Salman in, in modern times. The Saudi Arabia wasn't a country that just welcomed people very openly. I know, I know you know this very well, James, but 
this high, the whole idea that you could just get a tourist visa and go to Saudi wasn't really an option. Unless you had a work visa or you were from the country, you weren't really going to be visiting Saudi Arabia very often. And if you were, there wasn't really much to do. So the country has changed dramatically. And they're bringing in players like Cristiano Ronaldo, like Leo Messi. I mean, very few people are even talking about uh, how, how they're utilizing these players. I mean, Leo Messi literally has a tourism contract with the Saudi General Tourism Authority. That's how valuable they see this football player, not just as a sports asset to them, but as a, 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 a tool for promoting tourism overall. So there's a lot to this, I think. And I think people need to start analyzing this as something far beyond simple reputation laundering. Well, I, th I think that's absolutely correct. And um, uh, I think the tourism aspect that you're pointing out is really important. I think there are two other things also. What uh, probably many people don't realize, and you, you noted the health uh, aspects of, the, uh, uh, of Saudi sports policy and sports policy in general in the Gulf, what people don't really often realize is that the Gulf states have among the highest rates of obesity and of uh, diabetes in the world. And so they have a real healthcare crisis, which they're trying to address harshly through, um, through, through sports and trying to engage, get people to engage in sports. There's also one other point, which I think is important in terms of the distinction between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Saudi Arabia had, has and had far more of a uh, reputation deficit, if you wish, a deficit that came from what you were referring to earlier, the fact that it really was a closed country. It was a country that uh, was viewed as a secretive and, and, and almost medieval kingdom where women were not allowed to drive. All of that has, of course, changed now under the Salmans. But it's also a country that has serious human rights um, uh, issues. Just think back of the shakedown of the elite uh, when they were, uh, including members of the ruling family, when they were imprisoned in the Royal Ritz Cult in 2017, or the killing in 2018 of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Which brings me back to the human rights and trade union campaign we got up which was successful in improving the working and living conditions of workers. Sure, implementation remains the problem, but Gutter has implementation issues across the board. It strikes me, however, that the improvements have widened the gap of distrust between the Gutteries and the Gulf, maybe more in general, and human rights groups in particular. Part of that, I think, is Gutter is not always putting their best foot forward during the campaign. There were multiple things they could have done at little cost and or proactively. But to me, that doesn't really explain what went wrong in terms of the um, human rights campaign in Gata. What are your views on this? I thought, I think Qatar was in a possibly difficult situation from the time that it, 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 its, its bid was uh, successful. It is a much smaller uh, a nation in the in in the Gulf. Its position in the Gulf was uh, uh, a lot a lot more tenuous than than say Saudi Arabia's was or, or the United Arab Emirates, which were far more established and and even in terms of public relations, better known around the world than Qatar. Qatar also had a a troubled position just geopolitically in the region. 
making it much more willing. I think all those factors combined, making it much more willing to engage with human rights uh, activists and human and human rights organizations from early stages onwards. Whether that's as you as you mentioned, they never really put their best foot forward for the vast majority of that, but. They certainly did far better than other countries have. I mean, you will not see the United Arab Emirates or Saudi Arabia or many others, Bahrain included, engage with human rights organizations the way that Qatar did. But I think Qatar was in a position where it absolutely needed to. The end result that has occurred from Qatar uh, hosting the World Cup is that it has now had its own coming out party. It's now emerged into, into the sphere. This is a significant amount of prestige for a country that just a few short years ago was embargoed and blockaded by its own neighbors in the region. It was having quite a significant amount of geopolitical strife. All that sort of seems to have fallen by the wayside, and they all seem to be slowly regaining uh, diplomatic footing together again. And that's in large part due to Qatar being able to host the World Cup. I mean, Saudi Arabia wanted a piece of the action, and so did the United Arab Emirates. They were all hosting flights there. They all saw economic value from Qatar hosting the World Cup. Meanwhile, Qatar was trying to balance being able to have somewhat a decent PR image in front of the Western world just to be able to get to that final stage of actually hosting the World Cup, while at the same time trying not to lose face in front of its allies and neighbors in the, in the, in the Gulf. And it's a difficult position because Qatar also holds... Uh, you know, uh, part of the U.S. Uh, the U.S. fleet in the Middle East. So I think as a country overall, it's had a very complicated uh, little process, which is why it doesn't surprise me at all that the human rights campaign, for the most part, both failed to uh, garner enough of a response in terms of how we handle Qatar, and at the same time failed to present Qatar as the successful uh, venture overall when it comes to the World Cup. I think it's a complicated situation. I think it's worth mentioning, indeed, there was, in the final uh, final walk-up to the uh, 2022 World Cup, indeed, an effort by neighboring states, the UAE, Bahrain, Oman, Saudi Arabia, to get a piece of the pie. But that really came later, late in the game. Up until then, uh, particularly uh, the UAE was actually keen on trying to wrest the World Cup from Qatar, or at least getting uh, co-hosting the World Cup. And you saw an enormous campaign that went on for years about, like, about that. But coming back to the campaign and where the campaign failed, um, it strikes me that there were basically three issues. Uh, one issue was uh, a sense of lack of sensitivity, if you wish, and understanding what is possible and what is not possible. I would... I, my sense is that a majority of Qataris, provided that their concerns were addressed, did not have real problems with reforming uh, the labor regime, or the regime that governs uh, migrant workers. That was very different when it came to LGBTQ rights. And I don't know that uh, the human rights groups, the LGBT groups, really understood what that difference was. I think the second issue that we saw was that the debate, in a sense, uh, divided into two areas, a debate about legitimate issues, including LGBTQ, including human rights, including migrant workers' rights. But also, we saw this outpouring of, um, I'd say, almost Islamophobic 
prejudice against Qatar. And uh, those who were in the camp of the critics of Qatar didn't, uh, certainly the human rights groups and others, didn't draw a, a, a distinction between what they were saying and what others who were more uh, politically motivated were saying. And I think the, the third point is, at, you know, the issues of media coverage, which both involve accuracy as well as bias. And I know this is uh, things that you've given some thought to also. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just to take each point uh, one at a time, there were absolutely some extremely fair issues that needed to be covered. I mean, migrant worker issues is something that's not uh, restricted to just Qatar, but is a problem across the, the Middle East, the Gulf region and the Arab world overall. Uh, and we, I mean, it's even well known as something called the kafala system, which is really a, a form of modern day slavery when you consider the level of exploitation involved in it and the removal of someone's passport and the full complete control you have over these individuals and the horrific treatment this happens from kind i mean people very rarely mention a place like lebanon you know or egypt or these places where these these issues continue to exist the focus was absolutely on qatar and meanwhile qatar was holding a very very big event so of course it was going to get this sort of attention this is an issue that was not just limited to Qatar, and at least, at the very least, Qatar was attempting to take some sort of action, including uh, judicial action, actual parliamentary changes that were that were incorporated to, to modernize their labor laws. So that's an improvement that's worth recognizing. Now, when it comes to LGBTQ rights, I found this one to be a very difficult issue because I actually spoke to LGBTQ plus activists in the region. I have quite a few queer friends in the region, in the Middle East, across the Middle East, and I spoke to all of them. And not a single one of them thought that the, 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 the Western campaign to promote LGBTQ rights in Qatar was a, a honest one, mainly because it never incorporated them. Very few of these outlets even attempted to reach out to local activists to see how they felt about uh, in, in, even incorporating Western-style acceptance of LGBTQ rights into Qatar. A lot of these people don't want the traditional coming out or being getting out of the closet the way you see it or we see it in the Western world right now in places like Canada, the United States, etc. All these stories we see about coming out to your family, etc. This is not exactly how a lot of the Arab world wants to handle this. And this is what I've heard personally from friends of mine, that they don't see any, they don't, they don't have a sense of familiarity with how it's handled in the Western world. And I think that lack of discussion really hurt the cause uh, when it came to approaching LGBTQ rights in the discussion. Not to mention, I think Western activists and Western journalists don't take into account the fact that when you're hosting, when you are trying to pressure a country and you impose on a country that you must uh, change your LGBTQ rights, you must change them now, this is not up for debate. Well, it actually can go around and backfire and hurt the locals once you leave because you are parachuting yourself into a country for a short period of time and claiming that you've caused change. Then you leave. You never look behind to see what actually happened. And what actually happens is a lot of the locals, the people who have to live with the consequences, end up suffering thereafter. That's something the Western media doesn't really reckon with. This leads us into the other issue of Islamophobia. And that's something I did get the sense when I was reading articles, including from colleagues of mine at The Guardian. I was reading articles and thinking, you seem to have a bit more of an agenda than I'd like. And it comes to small terms. I mean, some of it actually reminded me a lot of Terms that, you know, the Maka people from Donald Trump would use, like shithole country and 
I'm thinking this is this is not uh, supporting your cause in the slightest. As a matter of fact, this is a point against you. I mean, it's it's this is not difficult. Discussing authoritarianism doesn't does or or the issues of authoritarianism or human rights doesn't require you to descend into xenophobic comments. I mean, that's a weakness on your end at that point. So yeah, you know, there was a lot of issues that definitely led to the human rights campaign not reaching the, the desired results or any sort of unified result for, for that matter. No, I, I think that's absolutely true. And there's also one other point, I think, on this. And you sort of noted it. It's not just that the geographic spread of, for example, the migrant workers' rights is far broader than Qatar, even far broader than the... Uh, um, uh, than the Gulf, it's also, this has been a long-standing issue. I remember when I first visited the Gulf in 1976, uh, I wrote an article out of uh, Kuwait, in which I described it as an apartheid regime, which was uh, partially uh, built on the whole issue of uh, migrant la the conditions under which migrant labor was working. But it also... It's also an issue that brings us uh, to something much broader, which is the issue of perceived double standards, which leads me again, and I don't know, and I don't have an answer to this, but the Guthrie World Cup was the catalyst that forced FIFA to adopt the human rights policy. The problem is that if you apply that policy, there's no country that would qualify. Western countries may have better human rights records, but European attitudes towards migrants involve violations of human and refugee rights. The United States, which is hosting together with Canada and Mexico the 2026 World Cup, is struggling with the legacy of racism and Republicans backpedaling on democracy. And then there is Mexico, with one of the world's highest rates of killings of journalists. So the question is, how do you apply Human, uh, human rights to the hosting of um, uh, of mega sporting events, and can you at all really do so? Well, that's uh, that's a fascinating question, James. That honestly, I continue to wrestle with to this day. Right after the the World Cup, I wrote a piece for for the Guardian, and it was an op-ed at the time saying that the Qatar World Cup should be a watershed moment in sports journalism. And by that, I meant that okay, we've reached a point now that we have agreed almost unanimously in Western media that sports and politics do intersect. Now I'm relying on that to also be a moment where Western journalists will say, okay, well, if we're applying this lens to Qatar, let's now apply, apply this to, you know, the Paris 2024 games, because we should be looking at France's authoritarian tilt that's going on right now with its, you know, with, with, with the, the, in trying to force uh, parliamentary changes to the pension without without actually passing a vote where by installing you know AI experimental surveillance that's very very authoritarian ahead of the work ahead of the Olympic Games these are issues that we should talk be talking about in France but there's a reason why most people aren't doing that right now and it's and you know it, it's definitely concerning but leading on from that I think the hypocrisy is 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 really really significant here James I think we're dealing with we're dealing with an issue that's really hard to 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 balance out. I think, for instance, there's there's a, there's, there's a big debate right now about the potential boycott of the 2024 Paris Games 
simply because Russia and Belarus could be participating because the International Olympic Committee is is at, the, at this point trying to decide whether they will allow Russian and Belarusian athletes back in as neutrals with a lot of caveats, of course. But Ukraine has come in and said, no, we demand, we will, we intend to boycott and we will be lobbying for a boycott and none of our national federations will be competing at any event where Russians or Belarusians are allowed even as neutrals. This has led to a wide-ranging discussion telling, saying that we should probably be boycott cutting Russia. Now, I have nothing against a symbolic gesture for Ukraine. I understand all Ukrainians right now who are literally under attack wanting Russia not to be involved in the Olympic Games. But I beg people to understand one thing. If you are going to apply a boycott to Russia, the only way this boycott can truly be legitimate is if it is applied equally to all other offending states. That means Israel's apartheid over Palestine. Israel should be also considered for a boycott. And James, when I when I use these examples and Saudi Arabia and Yemen, which I mean they've reached some sort of peace agreement now, but up until very recently, that's another country that we could easily have boycotted. And if we're going to count all sorts of other human rights concerns, well then that list goes on and on and continues to grow. I tell people that if you really want to have a legitimate boycott, well then you have to apply it equally to everyone. The problem is, as you mentioned at the very beginning, if you start applying it to everyone, then who's actually left over? And that's a tough question. And that's a tough question with no legitimate answer at this point. Some people will say, well, okay, I think we should apply to authoritarian regimes because at least democratic regimes have the impact, democratic nations have the institutions in place to be able to uh, rally against uh, corruption, uh, authoritarian tendencies, etc. So... If that is the case, then why aren't we focusing still on France's issues right now? Because you can't just focus on authoritarian countries because we're seeing democratic institutions failing as well. So where do we draw the line? Karim, you actually just touched on another point that I really wanted to make, which is that part of the problem I think we're encountering is that uh, the, in the international sports federations and governments really want to keep up a fiction. They leave, they, they've created a fiction, fictitious world in which the, uh, they assert that sports and politics are, uh, are separate. And in fact, as far as I'm concerned, they're Siamese twins joined at the hip and they're inseparable. And so the real question is, you know, how do you regulate a relationship like that? Do you do that with a code of conduct? Do you do that with uh, an independent regulator? But somehow, in that all of these issues that we're that we're talking about, including uh, the sports policies of the Gulf states, as well as uh, the issues of whether or not Russian uh, 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 Russian athletes should be competing under the Russian flag, or whether countries like Saudi Arabia or Israel should be sanctioned because of. Uh, what they're doing to, uh, to populations. Uh, the question is, how do you how do you regulate that relationship? That's a difficult question. I think I think it's a difficult one, primarily because I don't trust the current arbitrators or the regulators that we would have in place. I can't trust the International Olympic Committee uh, or FIFA. Like we talked about FIFA coming up with human rights uh, resolutions, etc. Well, I mean. Come on now, that is that is probably the the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I mean, the IOC and FIFA represent two two absolutely legal mafias that exist in the world. 
I would not trust them to to arbitrate or to regulate what's for lunch the next day, you know, rather than discussing <laughs> what actual world standing regulations on who's allowed in and out of a sport or or what politics are allowed or what activism is allowed. We've already seen what it's like when sports institutions regulate for themselves. The IUC has just decided that activism has no place at the actual Olympic Games. The Olympic Games, which has an incredible history of activism, of sports activism. The IOC has decided, no, you know what? This is causing too much friction. Let's ban it all entirely. So it's clear to me that they are not working out of anything other than self-interest. And as long as we're working out of self-interest, there's going to continuously be corruption. And these regulations will only be applied with political and otherwise agendas in general. So I don't trust them to be regulators. And when we talk about independence... Uh, regulators, who could those be? That's the real question, because we are dealing with organizations that are far too big in size. They are far too big. Their lobbying efforts are far too uh, great and significant, and their financial capabilities are even more exceptional than that. And they've teamed up with authoritarian regimes for a reason, because they know when it comes to building and expanding upon these large stadiums, like the IOC loves to do, like FIFA loves to do when it goes to new countries, the easiest place that you can pass those ideas and actually build without dealing with any form of bureaucracy is under authoritarian regimes and dictatorships. Those are the ones who can pass any new laws without having to deal with their own populations. The IOC and FIFA absolutely love that. And if they love dealing with autocrats, they don't trust them to regulate anything. No, that's absolutely true. That's why you've actually seen in over the last decade a number of Western countries withdrawing from bids because there was actually popular uh, resistance to spending that kind of money. And you see it in the uh, Saudi-Egyptian-Greek uh, World Cup bid, where the Saudis essentially are going to fund all the expenses that Greece and Egypt would have to go to to be able to host the, um, uh, the tournament, but then get the right to host 75% of the matches. But all of this brings us also to, to, I think, another issue, or two other issues. One is probably one of, the way, one of the ways of pressuring international sports associations would be if you had greater fan pressure. And to the degree that you have fan pressure, it's coming from the West, and it's really com coming from a minority of Western fans. Uh, I think if you look at the Gado World Cup, uh, it was economics, the cost of uh, the gut of, of attending uh, uh, matches in, at the Gado World Cup and the difficulty of getting into the country, you had to get a Hyatt card and so on and so forth. It was more those issues that uh, stymied to a degree Western fans from attending the uh, uh, the World Cup in Gata, even though there were many did come. It wasn't issues of labor. It wasn't issues of human rights. And so there's, in a sense, uh, in my mind, a, a lack of pressure from the bottom up. And it's even more so uh, when it comes to uh, the Global South, um, Central Eastern Europe, uh, with other words, from non-Western countries. There's even le less of, a, of an interest in trying to have a international sports governance that's more fit for purpose. 
When it comes to fandom, I think I think it's a really interesting one. I think based on my experience covering intersectional sports and politics for a living in, in, in a variety of sports where the vast majority of fans really care mostly for escapism, it's been a really difficult sell. And it does take, as you mentioned, a specific type of minority who is really can really back it or be interested in it and it's usually people who have an interest in uh, in the politics to begin with or economics or the business side of things or they happen to be from a minority group themselves and understand what it's like to you know come from the less privileged elements of society but if you're not dealing with that for the vast majority you're dealing with with a fan base that really is looking for escapism from reality and when you start to take the escapism away from them the way you know americans felt when colin kaepernick knelt at the nfl games how dare he mention racism and police brutality during our favorite sports that's exactly how they felt at the time and this continues to happen this really continues to happen in qatar it was how dare they want to wear uh, you know armbands that 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 signal one loves but you know everybody can love whoever they want how dare they do so this is this is a complaint that happens across sports. I deal with it a lot, in particular in combat sports. Is writing about mixed martial arts or the UFC or boxing. Those groups are quite conservative, and unless you're unless your your talking points are conservative talking points or right wing leaning or in love with Donald Trump, they are not quite interested in what you have to say. They don't want to hear about racial tension or racial issues in the United States. They don't want to hear about police brutality or gun violence or any of those issues domestically in the United States. Right now, there is a uh, a topic of discussion in the United Kingdom, James, about environmental activists and climate activists and animal rights activists disturbing and disrupting sports events taking place across the country and how it's just driving the UK sports establishment and sports fans absolutely crazy right now. A a man just hopped the fence and 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 jumped onto a snooker table during the first round match at a World Snooker Championship snooker of all things and just empty the packet of orange uh, orange dust across the table. And this was supposed to be a big political statement about uh, the impending climate crisis that we're dealing with. And people were like, well, why snooker? What's what about snooker? But let this let this to happen. So it was a bit of an odd protest at the time. But it goes to show you that people are just mad. They don't want to see this thing that they're watching as a form of escapism be interrupted in any way, shape, or form, no matter how righteous or valuable or important the topic of conversation actually is. So it's really hard to reach most fans. And I think that's really that's even more insidious when you think about why authoritarian regimes like to utilize sports. It is actually really easy because most fans simply want to engage with the sport at a sports level. It is really easy to pass along subliminal messaging to these fans by simply just owning these things. I think about the, uh, Saudi Arabia taking ownership of Newcastle United and how that's just won them a legion of fans around the world simply for taking ownership of a club that people love so much that have watched for years just struggle along while other clubs were richer, more powerful, and had more influence. Now Newcastle United has the opportunity to stand alongside those clubs. It's doing quite well for itself in terms of Premier League standings right now, and that makes them happy. A lot of these people just see this as, as a reason to love Saudi Arabia, to love Mohammed bin Salman. So the propaganda is actually quite simple when you think about it, because fans, A, aren't that smart for the most part and B don't really want to be engaged in anything other than the sport.
I'd, I'd probably argue that it's the second point. They don't want to be uh, engaged rather than they, they, by definition, may not be that. <laughs> you can tell I'm a bit jaded. You can tell I'm a bit jaded, unfortunately. But I, but I think what, you know, what you described uh, with Newcastle United, it's the same thing as what happened with Manchester City. Absolutely. When it was bought by the UAE or with Paris Saint-Germain, when it was bought by... Um, uh, uh, by Qatar, which brings me to another point, which I, I think, which I've argued before, but I think is 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 interesting and important, that uh, the experience of Gulf countries or Gulf nationals buying sports clubs, particularly in Europe, has really been a mixed experience, and it's almost always failed when it was an in, individual doing it for uh, reasons of vanity. And it's almost always succeeded when it was the state in some form or other, whether that was, in the, like in the case of Qatar, uh, ultimately a subsidiary of the Qatari Investment Authority uh, uh, and, its, it, and its sovereign wealth fund, or whether it was a... Uh, in the case of Newcastle United, of course, it was the uh, Saudi um, sovereign wealth fund. Or in the case of Manchester City, where it was the man who today is the half-brother of the um, of the president and the deputy prime minister. So there's also, I think, you know, um, one has to realize that it is certain Gulf investors that are that are truly sugar daddies. If you will. <laughs> And help and help clubs for good or for bad uh, become top or remain top performers, whereas it's not the Gulf or Gulf nationals by definition. Absolutely, I think that's a point that can stand on a, on a, on a, on, a, on a wider uh, front. I think this is a point that just generally stands for any of the discussions we're having. I think when we talk about the intersection of sports and politics or how all these things intersect, we are at the end of the day talking about the governments, the regimes, rather than the individuals themselves. Because in a lot of these countries, like the one I come from, Egypt, for instance, you don't actually get a say in what your government's doing. So I feel for every one of these countries, some people are going to be very supportive of their governments, while others are not going to be. So I never speak for the nationals. I never speak for the individuals themselves. It's always speaking for the actions of the government. And I think that's a good that's a good thing to point out always. Absolutely. And in, in the case of Egypt, as you probably know even far better than I do, if you look at uh, Saudi sports policy since Mohammed bin Salman came to, uh, came to office, the first several years of the Turkey El Sheikh were were a train wreck. Oh my goodness! My goodness, were they ever they even attempted to buy a team in the Egyptian Premier League called like Pyramids FC? The whole thing was just was just a joke, really. Yeah, no, Turkey Turkey has a has quite the reputation in Egypt. And they also had an experience with with the athlete, of course, the top uh, top clubs. But what does it tell you about, in terms of evolution of Saudi sports policy? I think they are in a process of not just trial and error, but I think they're learning from each experience. I think we're, we're dealing with a a very, very ambitious government that's, that is evolving rapidly. And 
really taking each lesson it learns like i i can i can just imagine it will take absolutely everything it can learn from this live golf experience no matter where it, the end result is whether it ends up being a legitimate rival to the pga tour which looks very unlikely with each passing uh, month at this point or if it's a massive failure and they have to just take whatever's left of their investment and and run with it you bet that they're going to learn from that before they ever attempt to buy anything within the United States again. And they will learn and they will improve each time because that's that's what they're capable of right now. They have the resources and the influence and the finances to be able to do so. So I see them as a legitimate threat, not a country to be taken lightly, not a country to be considered uh, a, 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 you know, a side issue that they can deal with later, which, you know, U.S. foreign policy likes to deal with. A lot of its allies that way it seems to think that, oh, we'll get them under control at some point. I don't think Saudi Arabia is the kind of country where you want to do that anymore. Based on just the development of their investments in sports, from targeting, you know, just I want to host an event, let's just host a WWE event, to slowly working their way towards potentially buying the World Wrestling Entertainment, to now slowly investing not just in Western events, but... As you had mentioned in the very beginning, at events in Asia shows the expansion of their interests, of their intentions, of their geopolitical goals. I think it's all very, very fascinating. And I truly believe that when we talk in, in within the world of sports and politics, that Saudi Arabia is one of the most significant uh, uh, factors, looming factors that we can we can discuss at all. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, and there are two aspects of Asia which I want to come back to. One is, and in fact, that may be motivated by what you were describing as that the, the Saudis may take their time before they take a second sports initiative in the United States, which may very well be why they're uh, looking at the Cricket Federation mm -hmm. and looking at sponsoring or you know, setting up the richest cricket uh, tournament in the world. And cricket really is an Asian sport. Absolutely. And, an, and a British sport, of course, but very much an Asian sport. And there's a second aspect of Asia, which goes back to the fans issue. And that is that if you look at what Saudi Arabia is doing over the next decade, it's almost for 90% major Asian tournaments. The World Cup being the World Cup be, be, being an exception. And yet what you're seeing in terms of um, campaigns by uh, human rights groups, for example, is that seems to be almost be uh, ignored. And yet in many ways, it's Asia where it's happening. It's really interesting as it goes to show you just how Western-centric a lot of the, the reporting is, and not just the reporting, but the, the view of the world. If it's not happening in Europe or in North America, then it isn't worth considering. When well, that's absolutely false, and it's that sort of arrogant thinking that has cost the United States a lot of its foreign policy over the last while, and applies all, all across Europe, to be honest. Uh, I don't think they realize just how significant what's happening across the world actually is. And I think that factors in, I mean, Saudi Arabia has also made significant investments in esports, but everybody only seems to be talking about their esports and gaming investments when it comes to a big uh, Western brand. 
But when they're making massive billion-dollar investments in China, in China, nobody's talking about that. Yet I find that to be far more significant because it 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 highlights it emphasizes this 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 growing China and uh, Saudi Arabia relationship, which I mean is 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 extremely significant on a world stage now. For those who don't know, I mean we just witnessed China help broker a historic a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia, one that the United States had absolutely nothing to do with. So we see, we can see sports as quite symbolic here. What's happening in the world of sports is also happening at large elsewhere, right now on a global stage in general. Saudi Arabia is emerging from its, from its you know, conservative uh, past and taking much more control on the global stage. And its main target now, much like the United Arab Emirates is as well, is Asia. And that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? They have some of the biggest Muslim populations in the world in Asia, including in India. So cricket, them targeting cricket makes a lot of sense for that reason as well. When you're talking about building fan bases around the world, the hardest ones that they were always going to convince were Western audiences for issues of xenophobia, for massive differences in their understanding of the global, of the, of global politics, of democracy. That was always going to be the most... The steepest uphill battle was going to be bringing Western audiences onto their side. They've been able to do that for the most front. I think it's going to be a lot less difficult to convince uh, audiences on the East, let's say. Four reasons of similarities in culture, similarities in ideals, similarities in religion. I also think we noticed that a bit at the Qatar World Cup. We talk about how... Uh, difficult it was for some Western uh, countries, so Europeans, say, and North Americans to attend the Qatar World Cup, mainly because of distance, because of, you know, the, the various different loopholes you had to go through. I would argue that those are less loopholes than what Arabs and a lot of people around the world go through to get into Europe and North America. Unless you have a really strong passport, you're, you have to get a Schengen visa. Anybody who has gone through the Schengen process knows how horrible that absolutely is. Getting a visa into Canada or the United States is extremely difficult. It's only gotten more difficult since COVID. There's a lot of people around the world who couldn't attend the World Cup even if they had the money to, simply because of the passport of where they were born. So Qatar, in many ways, was actually a equalizing factor when it comes to how we host the World Cup and who's allowed to attend the World Cup. It did. Qatar gained a lot of fans from its attendees in the in the Middle East and around and in that region of the world. There was a lot more Moroccans who were able to go appreciate Morocco's success at the World Cup than they ever would have been if this was 2026 and it was being hosted in Canada, US, and uh, Mexico. Because they would have needed those visas. Canada doesn't hand out visas left, right, and center. It really, really doesn't. Uh, same thing for the United States. Same thing across Europe. It's only getting more difficult. And as, you know, economic issues continue to take place, political issues take place and across Africa and across the Middle East, those visa issues aren't going to get any easier. Crossing borders is going to get more difficult. So in many ways, Saudi Arabia and Qatar are targeting a region of the world that makes sense for them right now. I, I think that makes, is absolutely true. And uh, I also think, you know, that was one of the miscalculations that we saw in terms of dealing with Qatar in the walk-up, that there was very little recognition that this was going to be a very different demography of fandom, uh, in part because it was the first time in, in the Muslim world. Mm -hmm. It was the first time in the Middle Eastern world. Mm -hmm. 
And it was in a country that's at the crossroads, if you wish, of the Mediterranean, Europe, Africa, and Asia. And, and therefore, you were going to get a much very different demography, which meant also that the pressure points for the Qataris were very different than they would have been for a European or Latin American country. Um, but I want to come back to, you sort of hinted at it, but, I, but I, I, I want to come back to a point that you did make, uh, which is that we're seeing as much, you know, we've talked a lot about the Saudis and why they're doing things. But what we're really seeing also with this, uh, particularly with the UAE, but also with Qatar, that it's, it's a competition between the Gulf states. And it's a uh, it's a rivalry that goes far beyond sports. Sports is one facet of that, uh, with Saudi Arabia obviously being the behemoth in the in the region, and the largest country, also wanting to be the wherewithal for everything, the hub for everything, and trying to in fact replace in many ways what the UAE is today. And it seems to me that part of that sports strategy is part of that broader stra strategy and ambition on the part of the kingdom. Oh, absolutely. We cannot talk about Saudi's overall sports ambition without talking about its regional rivalries. Absolutely. And, and, its, and its biggest regional rival is the United Arab Emirates, the country that has also has its own history of, of uh, Let's not use sports watching, but just involved in sports diplomacy, soft power using sports. I mean, they're very well known for their love of you know, horse racing. I've always found it interesting that the UAE took, when it comes to the world of combat sports, I like to think about combat sports a lot because there's something about combat sports and autocrats, and they seem to always connect together like glue. They really, really do. There's something about these dictators, and they just love that machismo of connecting themselves with combat sports. And it's no different in Saudi and the United Arab Emirates, believe it or not. The UAE first, it's one of its first examples of sports washing that I can think of is its attachment to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Now it hosts one of the biggest, if not the biggest, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu event in the world, the ADCC event, the most, the richest prize in Jiu-Jitsu, the prestigious event. It is hosted in the United Arab Emirates, in Abu Dhabi in particular, which is sort of the combat sports hub of the, of the, of the UAE. Now they also host in Abu Dhabi regular UFC events. And at one point during the pandemic, they actually quarantined a specific portion of Yas Island, turned it into a place called Fight Island, and the UFC was just regularly hosting events there during the pandemic. So the UAE sort of built itself, especially Abu Dhabi, as this sort of fight hub. While Saudi Arabia, on the other hand, said, no, 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 you don't get to just be the only fight hub, and decided they're going to host the biggest boxing events that they can get a hold of. And they did. I mean, uh, Alexander Usyk, like the, the Ukrainian heavyweight champion, got to compete there. Anthony Joshua got to compete there multiple times. We've seen several of the biggest boxing showdowns take place in uh, in Saudi Arabia. So even on on a, on a combat sports level, let alone an, an, a, a general sports level, we're seeing a a geopolitical rivalry in action. And this only expands and goes greater as we talk about sports. And then we go into the world of entertainment because it's very clear that we're seeing sort of an entertainment battle going on as well. Who can host the biggest festivals, the biggest expos, the most entertainment? Who can turn their tourism hubs into the fanciest 
most glampy, Instagram-friendly, influencer-friendly location you could possibly do. And we're seeing that happen. It used to be Dubai. We used to think of Dubai as this influencer-friendly zone. Now people are taking pictures at Al-Ondah and all these different places out in the desert in Saudi Arabia. So that rivalry is expanding beyond sports. Sports is just, just one facet of this continued rivalry between these countries. I'm very interested to see where Qatar continues to fit in because it does seem that Qatar's played, Qatar has at this point played its hand. It will, I mean, it has the stadiums now. It can continue to host events, but it doesn't get bigger than the World Cup, does it? It really doesn't, so... I think Qatar is now going to take a step back in the world of sports and maybe focus on whatever goodwill, whatever influence it has harnessed, applying it in other and other and other facets. That's the way I would see. But I'm very curious to see what happens next between the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia because there's no stopping those two countries at this point. There really isn't. Absolutely. Uh, before we come to an end, you mentioned the uh, the relationship between. Um... Uh, autocrats and combat sports and I want to note and give you a moment to talk about that it's not it's not just in the uh, in the in the Middle East to, to a degree it's in the Muslim world interestingly enough but I probably even beyond that but you just portrayed it uh, in an article that you wrote about Chechnya yes yeah, <laughs> Well, yes, I actually made my bones writing about uh, Chechen dictator Ramzan Kadyrov, who is a great and staunch ally of, of Vladimir Putin and has been at the helm of the, the Chechen Republic since 2007 now. He's celebrating 16 years of this month, actually. And Kadyrov, of all the fascinating and strange and bizarre characters I've covered over, over a decade in this, this job and how... He remains the most absurd, and as much as he appears cartoonish, he's absolutely one of the most dangerous figures I have covered. He has built a cult of personality around his 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 father's reputation, his reputation, and this brand of Chechen machismo and sports socialization that has that has rendered him into this sort of ultra man's man the strong man even though he doesn't really look like much of a strong man he looks like a bit of a hairy teddy bear almost like he doesn't really look like much of a strong man yet somehow he is associated with everything from you know actors like uh, jean-claude van damme and steven seagal all the way down to a host of ufc champions over the years that he's hosted floyd mayweather and tyson uh, mike tyson these boxing legends he has really rubbed shoulders with all the greats when it comes to uh, combat sports. A lot of that is to build this reputation that he is a man's man. And by doing so, he's also been able to rebuild Chechen identity in his preferred image. Now, if you want to be a successful Chechen man in Ramzan Kadyrov's eyes, you're either representing him in a cage, in a fight, or you're representing him out on the battlefield. Those are pretty much your two choices now as a Chechen man. And he was able to re-sort of like re-socialize his people in less than two decades. And a big facet of that was his love for mixed martial arts and boxing. And he's casting his son in the same mold. Absolutely. As he's also using mixed martial arts for that to prove that he has a dynasty ready to continue. He is now showcasing his kids in MMA fights, obviously, extremely fixed fights. If anyone who's ever watched a fight will watch those, you'll know it's a fixed fight instantly. They're fixed fights. He's representing them as these legitimate, serious politicians. I mean, his eldest son actually had a meeting with Putin quite recently. 
and uh, skilled soldiers as well. They've all been dressed up in gear with guns and have had, you know, propaganda, PR, or photo ops in uh, in occupied Ukraine. So it's really interesting to see the lengths he will go to and how much he believes in formulating this cult of personality and how these specific elements of being a soldier and being a fighter factor into it. Kareem, the last hour has passed in a flash. <laughs> we could go on for easily for at least another hour. And hopefully we will have a chance to do that again. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. I do want to re thank also the audience, our listeners, and our, our viewers. Uh, and again, I urge you to subscribe to Karim's uh, Substack column. And if you haven't yet done so, allow me to plug you to subscribe to my column, The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer. Take care, best wishes, and please join me for my next podcast in the coming days. Well, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. It's been wonderful.